You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Abi, founder of Togai. Super happy to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks, Nicholas, for having me here. Awesome. And I'm so excited because I'm a huge SaaS pricing nerd and it's about pricing. So I already love that. So tell us a bit about uh, what your startup does and who is it for? We are basically a company uh, that maybe before even I get into, because in the, uh, because it's a podcast about a little bit, I'll tell you how and what we got here, right? Just to set context, right? And uh, pricing is a very large word, right? So there are multiple things within pricing that we cover, but I'll give you some context. So this is the second company we built, uh, right? So me and my co-founders, we built a company before this in India. It was a payment API company, uh, like a traditional, think of it as a Stripe-ish uh, company in India. And we had traditional payment models like, you know, percentage fee and a fixed fee, etc. And we ended up eventually building about 80, 85 APIs within that company, right? And uh, a lot of those APIs were not simply payment APIs. And we realized that we needed very sophisticated and granular pricing, which were all different. So some pricing would be a percentage fee, some would be a, a per API hit, some would be on a successful transaction. So we would have some resellers who would require multiple layers of pricing, slabs, tires, etc. Right? And when we went to the market to find out if uh, we could find like a system that will help us price the way we want it to, uh, we can realize that most of the systems were built primarily for traditional subscription pricing. It because that's how the last decade of SaaS has primarily been. But there were a bunch of companies uh, who were now pricing differently. So metered pricing was becoming a thing. When I say metered, it's something, it's usage-based pricing or consumption. That's what they, it, in other terminologies for that, right? So businesses were pricing a combination of these, right? So there would be a fixed fee, there would be some combination, there would be variable fee, there would be combinations of how much a customer uses, et cetera, right? So we actually had a very strong thesis, not from a theory perspective, but from understanding customers, because we'd scaled that business from zero to five million plus uh, within about a, a year and a half, two years. But we felt we're leaving a lot of money on the table. So we wanted to make our monetizing strategy much better, but we couldn't implement it. So we ended up having to build something internally for ourselves, right? And uh, that product, when we started building a next company, essentially became Togai, right? And uh, what Togai does uh, in simple terms is, it's essentially a very flexible billing platform that helps companies implement any kind of pricing model that they want without the billing system being a bottleneck, right? So it could be subscription, it could be tires, it could be usage-based, it could be consumption-based, it could be a combination of these. So it helps you essentially decide your monetization or pricing strategy and implement that within the tool with very, very little instrumentation or developer effort from your businesses, right? And uh, we specifically focused uh, primarily on communication platforms and a couple of other niches that we're targeting. Uh, the reason we, uh, is that uh, we realized that the categories within SaaS itself, which have very complex pricing models, communications we realized is one, which has a lot of need to meter, etc., cetera, uh, requires a whole newer evolved billing system uh, rather than the ones that have already existed in the market. And that is what Togai is. Interesting. Sorry for the long, you, long answer, but that I mean, it's it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And then, are you like more like pedal or more like stripe? Meaning, pedal in the end extracts away a lot of things, but in the end, they build on top of like base, basically on top of stripe infrastructure still. And like, are a huge stripe customer, 
or are you literally replacing Stripe? So for me, I'm a founder. I, I have a, a metered-based SaaS, and now I, I want to work with you guys. What I, am I actually replacing from like the the known the the regular known players, so to say? Very good question. So think of us primarily as a Zapier for billing, right? So there are multiple upstream systems from which data comes into Togai, right? This is essentially uses data or data that is product data that comes into Togai. The Togai is a central repository for everything related to pricing. So this is why you manage your rate cards, what kind of pricing plans you want to associate, which customer needs to be associated to which pricing plan and uh, mediation and entitlements. What happens if a customer has bought a certain amount of credits and what happens if the credits get done? Do you block him? Do you push him to a different... So you entire control of your pricing and customer behavior within your software is controlled within Togai, right? And then we integrate downstream to a company like Stripe through which we send like to get your payments or to a NetSuite or to an accounting system or to a Tableau or a BI system to report. So it can kind of like go anywhere, right? So we exist. So we are a monetization tool. We exist between your product usage and your downstream systems for payment accounting, etc. We help you convert any action that your user will do on your software into a monetizable metric, right? So that's kind of what we did. Today, if you look at it, a lot of tools that exist, they're either doing it manually, they either have internal systems to meter, etc. So we are an evolution on Paddle or the next generation uh, a billing tool per se, right? Inclusive, and we are Stripe, there's some components of Stripe that we replace, but not the payment component of it, right? We are integrated. We have two-way integrations with Stripe where uh, automatically this entire flow can be automated by using us with Stripe, yeah. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast-growth startups. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. Interesting. But then let's move away from the product for a second and talk about you as a founder, your founder journey. Did you sell your last startup? And uh, did you, uh, uh, do you still run it? How did you make the transition from your first company into that? Right. So it's, it's a very, uh, uh, I mean, I think it's a pretty unique story of the last startup that we ran, uh, right? Uh, so we were primarily a payment API company for Web3 and crypto. So think of it as a Stripe for crypto companies in India alone, right? We're within India, right? So we obviously ended up taking the challenge and building a lot more regulatory secure framework for crypto payments, right? Like because you obviously understand the risks associated with crypto, etc., right? So if you wanted to, and we were not a crypto company, we, uh, we were essentially a supplier to the crypto ecosystem, right? Stripe for crypto. So we had scaled up, uh, we were doing pretty well. We had also raised the round of VC capital. We didn't necessarily need to, but we had some licensing requirements that we had to apply for and because of which we had raised some capital, little north of $3 million at that time, right? Uh, what happened was the Indian government and the central bank had primarily not taken a very positive view on crypto. And once that happened, we realized we wanted to move away from the crypto uh, because it, it, it didn't make sense. And we were not a crypto company per se. We were simply a supplier to the ecosystem. So if the ecosystem was like, for example, the taxation was essentially coming in that was going to make it more difficult for the retail investor in India to make to purchase crypto, etc. Right. So we took a call and we kind of predicted in a certain way that crypto might not really boom, might be on the town. And we wanted to move away from that company while we're growing. So that was a very, very important factor for us, right? So we were essentially, we were actually growing pretty fast. We had a million dollar revenue in about 12, 11, 12 months and we had about 5 million in about 16, 17 months. So we were doing pretty well. And uh, again, very cash profitable, high gross margin business, uh, right? 
But we realize that if some regulations come in and we start decelerating, when you try to pivot at that point of time, there's a huge amount of pressure, the ability to kind of attract investments, everything kind of like goes down, right? So even though we were growing and we could have comfortably made a lot more money in the next year or two, once we realized that the long-term, our part to 100 million, for example, was not clear, right? We're just the 5 million. Maybe we could have gone to 10, but then we would have kind of just stagnated. And a lot of that stagnation was because of macroeconomic factors, which were much beyond our control, regulation and comments. So we didn't want to really, as a start, young startup, you don't want to be trying to uh, wait for these decisions to come to you, right? So we decided to move away. And because this current product of pricing and monetization was already an internal project we had built and utilized for our first company, uh, we just took that out and started to productize that immediately, right? So the first thing we did in the first company was we completely took every per people working on it away from that, right? We just kind of automated that entirely, started, stopped onboarding new customers, uh, uh, gave notices to the larger long tail of the customers, just had a top 10, 15 customers who were generating enough cash flow for us to keep the burn in the company running, right? And we decided that we'll shut down the first company over a period of one year, slowly reducing it instead of just closing it. And while we were shutting it down, we had started also taking the year to build our next product, right? So essentially that uh, capital was, the, the, the revenue was funding our uh, burn for the second company. So we had also returned the original VC capital we had raised from the first company. Like I said, we were cash profitable. We hadn't really used it. We had just needed to raise it to, um, uh, you know, to meet some regulatory requirements of net worth and all of that, right? So we, re we returned the capital, we cleared the cap table and we started using the money to completely build the second company. And by the time in 2021, 2022, sorry, right? And uh, uh, we had come to a certain place where our product was, we had some amount of, in, uh, we were a few months away from launching, but we had a strong thesis and a strong understanding of the market and a product. We shut it down and we raised capital for the second company completely separately, right? Now, these two companies don't have anything to do with each other, except for the fact that they're built by the same team and the same founding team, uh, et cetera, right? So, uh, uh, and with respect to, Selling the first company, that was what, uh, I mean, that was the best uh, thing we could have probably done. I still don't know whether it was the right or the wrong decision. I probably will take me another five years to to kind of like know whether it was. But the context primarily was uh, because we were very early uh, and we had a few offers to sell, uh, especially from some of the largest customers that we had. So when we gave them, we told them we we're going to close, they, you know, we had some offers. Uh, these offers were uh, good. Uh, I would say like not very great would make the founders pretty rich, right? And would make the small team also pretty decently well-to-do. But almost all of this required us to be a part of the new organization for a time period of two to three years, right? Like, uh, let's say do it. And our, and by that time, we had also built, we, also, we already knew what we were going to build next and it was some amount of uh, confidence on what we're building. So then it became a question of opportunity cost, right? So for that amount of money we are going to make from this company, we sell it and join the, the company that, that is going to acquire us, um, we would make X amount of money, but can we create more value with the new company in that same amount of time? And the second aspect also was that uh, the, the money we would make would not be retirement money. So after two years, we would still have to come back and start something again. But now we had a great team, we had a great set of engineers and we had momentum. Again, after two years, you don't know, like, I mean, you go join, our people would come back and, you know, kind of. So we just said, and we were also, it, our age also played a factor. We are like early 30s. So we were like, if you're at 45, I'd probably take a very different call. I'll sell, I'll take the money and, you know, like, you know, but now we were like, we didn't really require so much cash flow, but we wanted the time to create value, which we might not be able to replace, come get back, right? So we chose time over money in that case. 
and started building that. And we were lucky enough that the moment we decided to build this, we were also had some um, uh, amazing investors who placed their trust in us, right? Like, so uh, we were able to raise capital a uh, good six, eight months before we even launched the product. And uh, so with once the capital was there, we were very clearly set in terms of being uh, uh, able to build the product and build the team that would help us build the product. So, yeah, that's the, that's the story. So it's there. We didn't sell it. We shut it down, but we still have the code base. We have the IP. And uh, at some point of time, if you think that's something we want to sell, we would. But today, we we don't intend to sell it. We want to keep it for other people. I mean, that's a very strategic way to get from company A to company B. Did you raise the money in in India where you're right now or, or in the US where you're going to soon? This company is a US company. Uh, I mean, it's based in, it's it's a incorporated there and we have a subsidiary in India and we raised it from, uh, but the fund is essentially uh, Indian VCs. But again, today the logistics of the fund are different. So they have, their money might be in the US, but they're essentially India first uh, funds, right? So the, the lead investor, uh, in our round was is a fund called Together a Together Capital, which is uh, if you might have heard of Freshworks, the public company, the first yep. Indian public company, and the CEO of Freshworks, it's his fund. He set up primarily focused on pre-seed and seed for B two B SaaS out of India to the US, right? So that's uh, they laid our round. It was a little north of three million dollars, and we also had uh, another uh, uh, smaller VC called Bold Cap, again very much B two B SaaS. We wanted to raise very much from B two B SaaS focused pre-seed fund because. Unlike the first time, this time we were pre-product. We were about six, eight months away from building or launching the product, right? So uh, uh, maybe a generic, uh, a more uh, uh, sector agnostic VC might not be able to add that much value at that stage, right? Like so, and now again, once be beyond a certain level, once you, then you're looking at more GDM and expansion, then that kind of VC might help. But here we wanted somebody who had a lot of expertise in the space and uh, and we are not like SaaS, uh, we don't have too much SaaS history, right? We built a FinTech before this, for example. So uh, we wanted some experts in the field who would be able to bring their thinking caps onto the table. And that's why we went down that road. Absolutely. I, I, I would love to double click on that because I'm in Germany right now. You're, you're in India right now still. And you're planning to, to move to the US yourself. Why, why that move? I mean, is there, in the end, everybody works remotely nowadays. Yep. So for the founders who like not in the US, which is still, if we're honest, in a way the tech center internationally, right? How do you thought about uh, basically setting up your company there, and then Erst also personally moving there soon, right? So the company is fat. I mean, the, the 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 larger point here is just being closer to the market, right? I mean, it's it's whether it's like you as the company or whether it's it's just being closer to the market is right. So that largest stamp per se is today still the US, right? Tomorrow, if that changes, or if we have a larger percentage of our customers coming from different geography, I mean, I would probably relocate uh, to be closer to the market, right? Uh, but yeah, and that's from the company perspective, right? And from a personal perspective, yeah, you, I mean, you're right that it's it's become remote, right? But building a startup essentially is, I mean, again, it's it's all about stacking the odds in your favor, right? Like it's really an experiment to know that if a company deserves to exist, right? I mean, you know, I think that's what reading about in Twitter somewhere, right? So that's that's a good way to put it. So for me, the fact that moving to the US firstly is because I had the chance to, right? I mean, I had a I got visa, uh, uh, we were able to raise capital. So the question is firstly, it's just about evaluating what are the possibilities and what are not the possibilities, right? And once within the possibilities, then you're thinking about what's the best utilization of that capital and that effort, et cetera. So for me, like, especially selling from India to the US, uh, and our product is slightly more mid-market to enterprise, right? And I think uh, selling remote to that category might be slightly different to one, right? Uh, maybe to an 
uh, a self-serve kind of motion where you have essentially marketing-led motions and people coming in, swiping the credit card, buying that remote really doesn't matter. But selling to slightly larger customers still requires to be closer to the customer as much as possible. And uh, if you're a startup founder able to kind of like increase your odds of success even by a percentage or two, I mean, you take it, right? Because it's it's anyway a very low probability game. So why would you want to do something that where you put yourself at a lower chance of success um, uh, for the company? So that's personally, I mean, I don't personally have much of a preference. I mean, I'm very happy living in India. I don't, I've lived here all 30 years and I think it's, India's, it's an amazing place to be at currently with the rate of growth and what's happening here, right? But this is very much a professional move in the sense that if my specific business and the problem that I'm solving for is, is the customers are there, then it just makes sense for me to be there uh, irrespective of um, personal uh, factors at this point of time. right? And yeah, yeah. and US is great. Uh, I mean, I visited a few times this year and uh, looks like um, the definitely the rate of momentum and technology change is higher over there, right? So sometimes what happens is you get to know things a week later, two weeks later, right? Like you're not on the ground, like and uh, even within cities, right? So for example, that I definitely believe that is a difference between even within India, like building out of a Bangalore or a Chennai or a Delhi, these are different cities over there. I'm sure in Germany, maybe between a Berlin, Munich and, you know, like somewhere on the right side might be very different, right? Because uh, supply to talent, uh, uh, sorry, uh, just supply of talent, for example, um, what's the tech, you know, what what kind of discussions, who are the people you're around and what are they talking about? All of these intangibles play a large part, right? I think that's why a lot of people migrate to the West Coast, which is where all technology is, is being built. But uh, eventually, it's go, the market is going to decide where, um, because we, we necessarily don't sell to SaaS, we sell to more communication platforms. Now, if a lot of communication platforms are primarily a different country, for example, right? Then, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to move move there. It could be Germany or it could be UK. But right now, US is where a lot of that is. So, yeah. And are you, are you will you build your team on site in the US as well? Or will right. that most of the team be remote and only like the go-to-market part, meaning the sales and maybe the C-suite will be in the US? Right. So uh, th that is a large amount of advantage of building product and tech from India, right? Like, uh, so my co-founders who lead product and tech, they are based out of India. And there's a huge advantage of building it here uh, simply because we have access to exceptional talent uh, at uh, a much cheaper cost, um, one, to build out of here. Uh, and uh, secondly, it's... Uh, till we understand them, we have a lot of home advantages here of being able to build the tech in that way, right? So GTM teams, yes, we intend to set up GTM teams and maybe some customer-facing teams in the middle term, middle run in the US uh, over a part of time, obviously just be close to the customer. But uh, the tech and the product, uh, we intend for it to be built out of India um, for the longer. I think it makes, it makes a ton of sense. That way you basically get the best of both worlds. Right. It, I mean, it has its cons in terms of just being able to, uh, uh, you know, just communicate and be on the same page for two, two teams in two different countries. Uh, but but yeah, but there are other advantages that uh, at this point of time, at least, uh, seems like this is the best way to go. And like, I mean, there are companies from India that have done it, right? And then, see, the largest problem for Indian companies, uh, at least why a lot of Indian companies are they're very early in B2B SPAS specifically is the GTM becomes the largest problem to solve for, right? So if you, by being in the US, you're able to build GTM teams there, somebody who understands the culture there, somebody who has some amount of a network to kind of open up, open up to instead of building from scratch, right? Those definitely are advantages. These are not insurmountable, but like I said, in a startup, if you get a 0.1% advantage to you, I mean, take it. Like that's, that's how I would say it, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that thinking of basically like stacking the yachts in your favor. And right. then as a last question before we wrap up, 
it's the second time you build a startup, what's the thing you do most differently compared to the first time? I think the two startups we built were very, very, very different, right? Um, uh, so I think every decision that you make essentially is different based on the timeline you make those decisions on, right? The first time we built a company, we were absolutely inside out, right? In the sense, we had an idea, we theoretically thought it would work, we built it and we tried to force fit that idea to a set of customers. We were lucky enough that a few customers bought it and the idea got validated and we were hardly looking a few months out, right? Like we would be thinking of what next two months, three months, etc. right? So yeah, almost all the decisions you're making were predominantly very short. I'll tell you an example that kind of like within our, within our uh, the context of pricing itself, right? So we were processing about $25 billion, right? Like in uh, uh, in the first company, we were only making about $5, 6000000 million of revenue, right? And for a good year, we didn't even realize that we were we had got a monetization strategy very, very wrong. We were just undercharging quite a bit, right? Because at that point of time, we were only consumed by the fact that we were growing to 0 to 5 million in 18, 16, 18 months, which was not a very common phenomenon. Not many companies in the world do that. So we were very, very engrossed and we thought we were amazing. But what we didn't realize was we could have been a $25 million company, right? That realization came much later when you look hindsight and you're like, okay, wait, we could have done this much better, right? So when we built the second company, we took a very long-term view on things. Like we're very clearly a 10-year, we, we, even the, the concept of what we're trying to build in terms of helping, we're not simply a billing company, right? Like today what we do is that, but we think that companies, essentially there's going to be a monetization team within every big business out in the next decade, which means there's going to be teams that's going to evaluate how each customer is using a product. How should we monetize the customer in a manner that extracts the best value out of the customer and also gives the best value. So it's not simply about increasing prices, right? It's about what is the best way a customer pays you, right? And this does not come from intuition. This comes from understanding of data. And this comes from uh, today, even extremely large companies still price their product based on what two of their competitors are doing or what uh, or what simply how much the cost, uh, the cost plus plus, right? They're not really going uh, too deep into how the customer understands their product. And that this also has second order effects. So depending on how your customer use your product and how you price them, we'll also decide how you build your product. What are the features you focus on? What, how do you package your, your products, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we think there's going to be a huge change in the next decade and there are going to be monetization teams in every company. Just like how there's a product team today, which was not there probably 15, 20 years ago, we think there's going to be a monetization team or a pricing team, whatever you want to call that, right? And not simply be something that you look at once every year and say like, okay, we need to change prices because, you know, it's something is reactive, right? So it's going to be very proactive. And this team is going to need a tool, like a monetize, a suite of tools, right, for the monetization stack, right? And that's what that's what we we are intending to build, right? It's a multi-product company over a part of time, right? But the reason we chose meter billing as a great entry point is we realized that the companies that were doing metering uh, primarily were companies who are already thinking of pricing from a slightly evolved point of view. So we didn't have to change their mind from scratch. Right? So they already knew a little bit of that, so it was easier to sell to them. So same way, a great early adopted use case, but the goal is for every company today. So it's not like subscription pricing is worse and usage-based pricing is better or nothing like that. The question is, irrespective of what pricing that you do, you have to come at it from a point of data. If you do subscription pricing, that's because that's what your data says. You kind of understand that's the best way to monetize. If you do use space, that's because your business model and data says that's the best way to monetize. And to get that information, you need a set of tools that your monetization team is going to work on. And that's what Togai intends to build over a part of time, right? So um, that's the, that, so that kind of, the larger 
so coming back to the larger point right so when you think about and I, if i was thinking the first company in 10 months or 5 months i am not thinking that long i'm simply thinking i have a tool today how can i sell it right but now it's literally a time scale of 10 years so that thinking back from there of if this is what you want to build how do you go first what's the entry point how do you get to customers and how do you show them value over a point of time right it's literally maybe this is for for example there might not be enough customers today building so what can i build to slowly increase that right what kind of categories might make more sense because of macro changes to that uh uh product right and how do we build teams do we build so we very bottoms up first time this time we built pretty top down right we had great people they you know get them responsibility and to make the mistakes and learn over a point of time right so i i think a lot of um, uh ways that you uh you lot more hands you less lot less hands on lot more delegating a little more and taking on important um uh just moving on from one work to other it's important etc right so uh just the mindset of a founder from the first time to second time i i, I think it's yeah, incredibly different and uh, a lot of that simply comes from thinking on a different time scale uh, like just thinking between 6 months and 10 years so every decision that you make is uh, we say no a lot more now right like the sense we said no to customers who don't fit in uh, who are willing to pay because they don't fit into our uh, icp profile right for example right they might just so those kind of things we have never done in the first startup we anybody says anything if they're willing to pay we would be like you just got to do it right because you had to pay salaries so uh yeah those those would be some of the way that you think differently from the first second time around yeah i love that that just shows how much perspective can change everything down the absolutely. line basically absolutely awesome avi thanks a ton for coming on today my pleasure nikola and uh, it was lovely speaking with you and uh, yeah uh, i hope to be in touch uh, after this as well yeah. if you like this episode then you'll love the saas operator a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.